0: You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more.
1: I'm Betty Buckley, and this is The Fabulous Invalid.
2: Welcome to The Fabulous Invalid, a Broadway-centric podcast where we take a 360-degree view at the theater through interviews with actors, writers, directors, designers, and everyone in between. I'm Jamie Dumont, recovering Broadway marketing associate, personal chef, and event planner.
0: I'm Rob Russo, writer and theater critic with StageLeft.nyc.
3: And I'm Jennifer Samard, currently appearing in Mean Girls on Broadway. Hi Rob. Hi Jennifer. Hi. Hello. hi. And hi Aaron. How are you? That's right. Oh, Aaron's with Aaron. With us Aaron. as always. We don't, silent, no, we, have, we don't have
2: a mic on Aaron. No, he's our silent
3: partner. Well, we don't
2: have a mic on Aaron because we are uh, we've traveled today. I
3: know. Should we tell everyone where we are? I do. We are in Boston at the beautiful Four Seasons Hotel overlooking the Commons right now.
2: Yeah. We and have like the best view we've ever had, <laughs> literally. <to> God, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's all downhill from here. <laughs> Although the view from your boss's office
0: is pretty nice, Rob. It was raw. nice in Midtown, yeah. but it's Midtown. You know, the common is, you know.
3: And now we're looking at water gorge. and swans and yeah. weeping willows. And,
0: and it's season two. <laughs>
3: It's season
2: two, guys. We're back. Guys. This is, this is, uh, this is season yeah. two, fellas. We're in it. So, you know, last season we brought you a different interview with, uh, with 40 different people who uh, worked in the theater community, um, plus a bonus episode on the Hudson Valley Shakespeare Festival, That's which right. was quite That's fun. Sweet. But I'm going to do something I don't normally do. I'm going to ask you all to feed my ego. And Jamie, by that, I... out of character. I know, <laughs> I know. I'm such a modest yeah, person. Yeah, I think of modesty, I think Jamie Dumont. But, yes, absolutely. But I'm going to say, you know, check us out on social media. Come to our Twitter page, come to yes. our Instagram. I, I'm actually rather proud of our Instagram. I think it's quite fun. Yeah. Um, what's the other one?
0: Facebook, mm-hmm. and you can find us at. Okay, Rob, help me out. At the fabulous, in, at fabulous invalid. Ah, see, yeah. see I'm not I that I one messed in... up, right? It's at fabulous invalid, and our website is the Correct. So come, but all of our handles. I are
2: promise, the if you if you engage with me on social media, I will engage back. I am literally sitting at my computer with my fingers poised on the key tips. Key tips, key pad. What do you call it? Keyboard. Like I'm ready to talk. Is <laughs> what I'm trying to say. I'm like
0: ready yes. to like to engage. You're, you're unmasking you. our, our 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 social account. It's it's all Jamie.
3: Jamie, I'm so glad you asked for social media followers because that is part of the game. And the irony is, is we have so many downloads of our podcast, and if all those people followed us. It would be remarkable, like the the num- the increase in numbers that we'd see. So give us a little love, come it would on. It Be yeah. like
2: Christmas and my birthday I combined. I know because <laughs> we have
3: all these all these downloads and which is really exciting and yeah, thrilling. It's are like listening. just my goodness, hit hit follow. You can mute us later. So Good easy. lord,
2: that's true. Really, <laughs> I mute everybody. <laughs> no, but
3: I mean, it's just a part of the game. So if you want to, you know, help, help a sister out, just hit the damn button. Thanks. <laughs>
0: We do actually have some news to share with our with our audience. Rob, do you want to take it away? Sure. Yes. Um, As of this season, we are now a proud member of the new Broadway Podcast Network, which is a consortium of Broadway podcasts uh, that have been put together all under one roof, and we're really excited to um, you know join our peers. bunch of other really great podcasts that are going to be sharing. The this, Ensemblist. The Ensemblist is part yeah. of the family. I think
3: yeah. Josh Swallows is going to be yeah. Josh Slamans, Josh, right. Josh, Josh, Josh Swallows. I love yeah. Josh, yeah. so uh, I'm so excited for him. The,
2: and the Ensemblist, which we just mentioned, yeah. Be More Chill, Alana mm-hmm. Levine's second podcast yep. is oh. on there. And there's a whole bunch that we probably will be anou- They'll be announcing yeah. soon, but it's going to be quite a huge group of really talented people um,
3: no, and uh, we're, talking about the theater. And it's lovely that we've been invited to be among them so yeah. that's you know so yeah uh, you know Secure people Are always the kind of people Who say The more the merrier There's You know like the, yep. And that's What we believe in And we wish All of them The greatest of success And we follow them
2: And follow us back
3: We
0: hope And, yeah. and, yeah. and that said Community. Our audiences mm-hmm. Will find each other Which well, I'm excited about yeah.
2: Yes It's great for everyone And nothing really changes You can still get us On iTunes Spotify mm-hmm. All of those Nothing will change Other than There'll be another platform To help push out And
0: get the word About all these great podcasts And we'll yep. be a part of that Yeah yep. Well we're here in Boston. Let's uh, get to our interview with the one and only Betty Buckley.
3: Today we are thrilled to have with us a star of stage, television, and film, a recording artist with 18 solo albums, and a bona fide Tony Award-winning Broadway legend. With such credits as 1776, Cats, The Mystery of Edwin Drood, and Sunset Boulevard, among others, I am delighted to introduce...
1: My friend and colleague, Betty Buckley. (laughs) My friend Jennifer, I'm so happy to see
2: you. (laughs) Me too. Hi, Betty. (laughs) Hello, Jennifer. Thanks for coming down. Thank you. It's
1: great to be here. Hi, Rob.
2: 18 (laughs) solo albums. Even Diana Ross doesn't have 18 solo albums. That's a huge accomplishment. I just keep churning out new collections of music
1: (laughs) every year. I hope people enjoy them. <laughs>
3: well, speaking of hope, hope is one of them, and I got to see yeah. you at Joe's Pub last June. That's the most
0: recent one. Yeah, yeah I think. which was beautiful. Thank That's you. wonderful. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, as you end your run here in Dali Do- in, in here in Boston, um, I was wondering if you could share with us a little bit what it has been like slipping into this iconic role over the past year.
1: It's been um, an incredible joy and um, a real honor that uh, Scott Rudin and Jerry Zachs the great, Jerry's ex, entrusted the role to me for the national tour. I was pretty shocked when I got the call. I was on uh, the set of um, Preacher, AMC's hit TV show, Preacher, and I played the main bad guy on um, Madame Marie Langelle, um, um, a voodoo priestess who uh, steals people's souls, and it's very cruel, and it was really the kind of role I love to play, most of all. And you so, were brilliant, <laughs> sorry, but we watched the finale together in uh, your apartment yeah, when you were so rehearsing. I had to get your see it what she so thought good. of my horror <laughs> death so <laughs> but anyway I was so delighted because I was a huge fan of the show and it followed it religiously uh, for two seasons like every Sunday night was about preacher you know (laughs) so when this role came up I was like overjoyed so it was my first week in New Orleans on a shooting and my agent called just out of the blue and said you won't believe this but Scott Rudin uh, called and they've offered you the national tour uh, to go out next fall to rehearse this summer um, when you finish you know preacher and I, I was like, what? Me? And, and he's like, yeah. And I was like, what? And he said, I, I said, I'll, I'll have to call you back. And I literally was like, Oh my God, What me doing Dolly, you know? And the mere idea of taking this, um, you know, iconic role on, especially after I'd seen Bette Midler do it and Miss Jennifer be Miss <laughs> Ernestina in the show, which was so delightful. I'll never forget. It was the best. I saw it like a couple of months before they won all the Tonys. And um, I have never, this show was never on my radar. It was not on my wish list. It wasn't even in my head. <laughs> I was like, you know, I I wasn't, to be honest with you, and this is very embarrassing to say, having just done it for a year, but in this glorious production, I was never a fan of the show. I think I was about, you know, mid to late teens when I first saw it, and I didn't get it. I didn't understand why everybody at the regional theater, our regional theater in Fort Worth, Casa Manana, Fort Worth, Texas, you know was so delighted to see this woman flounce around in these beautiful dresses and hats, and why they were all so thrilled she was at this restaurant I just didn't I didn't get it you know, but part of it was that I was a really dumb naive teenager you know like my learning curve has been a slow one, and fortunately, when I was young, I knew that I would get better as I got older and that my um best work would be in my later years, because I knew it was going to take a lifetime to grow up, you know. Thankfully, I knew that. And I gave myself that time and studied with brilliant, brilliant teachers for many, many years. But it still wasn't something that was my fancy. And I saw the Pearl Bailey version when I was 18 on a trip to New York. And I, I, you know, thought, oh, yeah, this is entertaining. They're lovely. They're fun to watch, you know, and they're fun to hear. And I still didn't get the story until I saw this glorious production and I was like what you know and when and the the production values of the thing Jerry you know surrounded himself with the best artistic collaborators in the business you know Natasha Katz and the lighting and brilliant Sonda LoCosto doing the sets and costumes and he now he was on my wish list you know <laughs> I, I have always wanted to do a show with Sonda LoCosto because I just think he's unbelievable and I met him you know socially at parties and stuff in Pasadena I'm always like oh Sondo you know bow down <laughs> and he's just you know he's a genius so to get to work with him was incredible Warren Carlisle's choreography is beyond and Bette Midler I just you know I'm everyone's a fan of Bette Midler but I'm a fan too and I thought it was one of the best things she's ever done, because within her remarkable comedy was a fragility that I'd never really seen before. And I was so touched by her performance and how they really told the story. But from the moment that they came on in Sunday clothes, which, you know, these, these costumes and the dance, and everything, I started crying, and I couldn't stop crying throughout the whole show. I was just like, oh my God, and just thinking of it, I start mm-hmm. weeping again, because it was so beautiful. And my brother was with me, who's a brilliant director. He's eight years younger than I am, but now he seems like he's the wiser one. I've, I've is it Norman or Pat? Norman. 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 Okay. And he, I, he was laughing at me through the whole show. I'm oh. like, Norman, this is so great. you know. <laughs> and we were sitting on the second row. And when Bette comes down for her curtain call at the, on the passerelle at the end... Everyone was standing. Everyone was crying. We were all, the entire audience was in a pure state of rapture. I've never experienced anything quite like it. And I was leaning across the front row to touch her, like all the people in the front row, like I was some kind of insane mall girl. You know, I was like, oh man, you know, it was just like so crazy. And my brother, um, my brother was just laughing at me, you know, and when the show was over, I said, Norman, this may be one of the greatest pieces of musical theater I've ever seen. And, you know, I'm a student of musical theater, so that was a big thing for me to say, you know, and my brother's just laughing at me. And I still wasn't. I think part of the joy of the experience was I wasn't analyzing it. I wasn't sitting there examining it like I would normally when I see a role that maybe I could play, trying to think what would I do, you know, would I have my analysis brain was completely shut off, you know, and I was just letting it wash over me everything about it. I've done comedy, but not, you know, comedy born of naturalistic human behavior, but not what my glorious co-star, Louis Stadlin calls antic comedy. And he explained to me that the majority of ladies that have, you know, on the star list of ladies that have done Dolly Levi, they're antic comedians. And I'm, you know, I didn't even know what that was. And, you know, like Lucille Ball is an antic comedian, Carol Channing, obviously. And so that was like, oh, oh, okay, and so fortunately, I had Lewis as my leading man, and then Jerry is a genius, you know, so I just put myself in his hands, and, you know, he taught me, I felt last summer, a year ago, that I was literally in antic comedy school, you know, (laughs) because the sections of the show are pure farce, and you know, he explained to me it's all about musical timing. And once I understood that timing and the other thing that's strange is, you know, as you age, uh, you know, you become more and more in show business self-conscious of your looks and your aging process. And I had just had this experience on Preacher where they wanted me to be as horrible as I'm capable of being, you know, as like demented and ugly. And and that's incredibly freeing because you're like, you're not trying to, Make sure that the lighting or the angle of your photographer, you know, cinematographer, is where it needs to be. You're just like, okay, let it, let's let it, <laughs> let's let all your craziness hang out, you know. And that was so much fun. It was just a blast. But fortunately, I'd had that experience, so I was a little less self-conscious than I might have been prior to Preacher. My brother, again, Norman, who's one of my go-to friends and, you know, advisors, he's like, Betty Lynn, just be as goofy as you know how to be. And then he reminded me that I had done, you know, in my early days in the musical theater from age 15 to all through my college days, I'd played... Uh, Annie and Oklahoma, Maisie and the boyfriend, Megan Brigadoon. You know, I, I'd done a lot of comedy that I don't even think of because I set my sights when I got to New York City on becoming a serious, you know, musical theater actress. Like the actresses I adored were Kim Stanley, Geraldine Page, and later on Jenna Rollins, and I wanted to be that kind of truth-telling actress, you know, who could really tell stories about human psychology, and I've spent all these years studying with great psychologists and great acting teachers. It's been like a lifelong mission to bring a certain quality of absolute truth to being a musical theater actress, and I think in a way, there were a handful of us of my generation, I was one of the first actress-singers to actually bring that work quality of work to the musical theater and I feel really proud of that you know that I made an actual contribution to the evolution of the form of musical theater and you know certain people that are also you know students of the evolution of musical theater like Seth Rudetsky who's one of my favorites you know um, have confirmed that yeah I I did that.
4: Have my dreams!
1: Because I always felt there was a body of truth on the planet that I needed to know, and so when I was in my twenties, I, um, I, you know, set on this quest to find that truth, and it, I wanted someone to just give me a handbook and say this is it. <laughs> so I read all these texts, and I was constantly looking and searching and questing, and so I finally, through the uh, support of brilliant psychologists, as I said, and great spiritual teachers, I, you know, realized what it was and that then I realized through meditation and the practice of meditation and uh, spiritual philosophy that I needed to bring that to my work. And I found that um, way of working when when I was doing It Is Enough because just to survive It Is Enough I needed to meditate all the time and I was a runner and I would go to the UCLA track late at night and just run and run and run just to like survive that factory like atmosphere of doing a television show which I'd never done. And working for Lorimar Productions, which was literally, they loved to brag that they were owned by the mob
0: as a a psychological
1: manipulation to make you really afraid, you know, and that I resented thoroughly because I was from Texas, you know, and there's this thing about being from Texas where you're... There's a brashness, you know, and a kind of sense of self as a Texan. Yeah. <laughs> it's not so weird. Oh, it's true. Real. My, it's my, real hu- real. my husband's from Texas, and he, he talks
3: about, he, when he reveres you, he's like, oh, Betty Buckley, good old Texas gal. And yeah. he's like, Jen, we're going to go visit her on her ranch, because he's from Dallas. <laughs> you have to come. <laughs> <We're gonna laughs> you have come. to come.
1: Yeah. You know, there were so many questions I had as a teenager growing up in Texas about the inequalities of men and women. And the way our next-door neighbor's husband be- behaved, and I was their babysitter, so I was privy to all that craziness, and I was just like, this is not cool, you know? Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> when I was in college, I was a charter subscriber to Ms. Magazine, mm-hmm. and suddenly there was a language for what I was feeling, you know, and I realized mm-hmm. I'm a feminist, that's right. And so, um, you know, some of the things that have helped me in being working with great psychologist is understanding how other people operate in the world. A lot of the men I've worked with from the beginning of my career were surprising to me. I was like, what? (laughs) You know, you talk to me like that, you act like that. And it was especially put to the test when I worked um, for Lorimar. And I was just like, gee, many crickets, who do these guys think they are? You know, and it was like, I confronted them. And that got me in trouble, you know, over and over again. Part of what I teach when I teach, I've been a teacher for I guess close to, what, well, 47, 8 years, something like that, um, I, I really try to prepare my younger students for how to avoid the minefields of show business, you know, and how to keep their own counsel and how to have a support team so they don't feel like they have to speak up because, you know, I paid the price and it's not not fun. Sometimes you walk into a situation you have to really suss out quickly who you're... The psyches are of the people that you're working with, and how to just keep your nose down and do your work. And know, you know. what battles to
2: pick, right? Know which, know yeah. know or what's worth what fighting battles for. battles not to pick at right. all? Right. Very true.
1: It's just like absurd, mm-hmm. but anyway, that's. I don't think it's just show business. I think obviously, what's interesting about the world today is all this stuff coming to light that it's everywhere, mm-hmm. and it's really awful, you know. So, yeah, working with that, and you know, Dolly has been an incredible gift to be in service to, as you were talking about, connection and communication with a greater audience that is hugely in need of feeling this quality of joy and the remembrance of the essence of what we're all about as human beings, which is to connect and love and respect and honor one another and that that is possible. At any age, you just have to remember. But it's been fascinating to travel to all these major cities all across the country and feel the the uh, particular atmosphere and audience of that particular city. Each uh, each city has its own distinct personality. And it's just extraordinary. Um, and the show, this particular, I mean, I'll be forever grateful to Scott Rudin and Jerry Zachs and these amazing uh artists that have put this production together. So nice to be back home where I belong, you're looking swell, Nanny,
4: I can tell, Danny, you're still glowing, you're still growing, you're still going strong.
0: As you have traveled the country over the past year, um, you know, it seems like it's, it's Quite a lot of of physical exertion oh. and constantly uprooting yourself every week you're in yeah. a, or every two weeks you're in a different city. Yeah. How do you take care of yourself as a performer as you well, embark on national tour? Well, I live a like a tour? nun, yeah. and, and that's a, you
1: know just I don't like during the week I'm during the week I'm Sunday Sunday. The hardest thing about the tour is the five show weekends. It's like Friday, two on Saturday, two on Sunday. Mm. And I'm doing eight shows, and on the road. And not all the ladies in New York did eight shows, wisely so. (laughs) Um, But I didn't think of that. and so (laughs) Um, I said, yeah, yeah, I'm up for eight shows. But it's, oh, and this, I, when I saw the show, she gave what looked like such an effortless performance. Mm -hmm. I had no idea. You know, I thought well. The hardest show I've ever done is Sunset Boulevard, and that was a killer. You know, and I was in I was in my mid forties, mid to late forty. I can't remember exactly my age, and I. Uh, but I was a runner, and I was so strong. I mean, I was unbelievably strong, and I was training with my trainer every day and running every day. You know, like the, they used to send the car for me to pick me up and take me to the theater, and I would to the Minskoff, and I would run. And the car would (laughs) follow me with my (laughs) bags and stuff, (laughs) you know, because I had to work that hard to be that strong, and and it was wonderful to be that strong and to be able to sing like that. No oh. As you get older, um, I'm like, well, I knew I'd have to get back in that kind of shape. And I'd lost like 20 pounds for a preacher before that, before I even got a preacher, because I knew I had to be more serious about it all. Because I was basically living my life in Texas on the ranch, riding horses, you know, three times a week, maybe working out a couple of days a week. But, you know, I'm I'm pretty uh, much a couch potato, and, you know, I like to drink a good bottle of wine and stuff like that. So... That was what I was doing and going to eat Mexican food at Joe (laughs) T. Garcia's in Fort Worth a couple of times a week and then realizing that um, that was maybe not the best thing. And so uh, (laughs) what has been a great source of inspiration and joy to me, and one of the things I'm more appreciative of to Scott Rudin and Jerry Zach's than I could ever communicate, is that I turned 72 this summer, this July. I started the show when I was 71. But to think that I could actually learn a new skill set in my craft at 71 was like, this is so cool. And then to think I could get in this kind of shape mm. at 71 to 72. Because I think in our culture, we think, you know, there are demarcation lines that are like, oh, now I'm older, now this, I'm that. And we all work together to make each other feel that way. It's like a huge program and it's it's corrupt and it's stupid and it's a lie but I was a victim of it you know I'm like oh yeah I get to be older now da, 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 this is me da, da, da. I'm an older person you know and um, you just start to go into that mental lull and it's like it's not necessary you have to but the, and the other thing is people say oh you have to work so hard and I'm like you work that hard in your 20s to be in that kind of shape. You just forget that. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's not a given ever. You mm-hmm. have to work. And so I just hope I retain this cuz I'm I'm quite aware that once mm-hmm. I get back on the ranch it's going to be Oh yeah Mexican food yes, called yes, is calling is right. calling Joe T Garcia's
0: is that's calling right. Well you're so
3: humble, that's one thing I love about you. You're <laughs> so acclaimed and always wanting to learn and oh, truly mm. Thank so you. childlike in your appreciation of everyone else's genius Thank of you. which you possess yourself. Thank you. Jennifer. And as far as preparedness, you posted a Facebook photo that I, I just made me love you even more <laughs> about you reading your act one oh, before yeah. the show and mm-hmm. that you read act two every single night. Yeah. <laughs> I, for all you youngsters out there, that's called being professional. It's so impressive, and that is one of the things you do to prepare every single yeah, show.
1: Yeah. While I'm putting on my makeup, my assistant Kathy, who's I'm so fortunate has worked with me for 19 years. She's so such a wonderful person, and you know keeps me all silly and stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, we run first scene cuz i feel like it's rebooting the computer every day cuz the computer of your mind gets so like confused by all the stuff that we're you know constantly b- bombarded with in the media and the stuff that's making us upset and mad and stuff like that and dolly levi is the living epitome of joy you know and it's like so I have a lot of processing to do before I get to the essence of who Miss Levi is you know and um, then I have this little thing I read every night before I go out there I just jot down some key points that Jerry told me and that I have also uh, considered about in terms of the discovery of who she is and then certain performances I've had these moments of And I'm sure you've experienced this where you walk out there and you you suddenly go, oh, that's what this is, Mm -hmm. you know. You know, normally in a Broadway long run, sometimes it'll take me up to three months to really find my thing in in the deal, you know, apart from choreographer's instructions, director's instructions, you know, what the whole deal is. It's like huge amount of data that you're processing. And then learning how it works with the audience and it goes on and on and on. But normally, like you know, if you have eight weeks of rehearsals and then a couple of months of previews, then normally by the time you get to opening night, although for years I never gave on my opening night or critic night what I discovered shortly after that, which was very frustrating to me. And then my first show that I actually gave on critic night what my performance was, was Edwin Drood. But I think that's because we'd done it a workshop downtown at the public, then the run in the summertime at the in the park. And by the time we moved to Broadway, I knew what I was doing in that part, you know. And so I was so excited, though, that I went on and actually did my show on a critic night. I was like, that's like a first. This is so <laughs> exciting, you know. But this show, I don't think I found my footing in the material or understood my 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 purpose as a storyteller until... Costa Mesa, which was like a good five months into mm-hmm. the run, and one night, it, a lot of it was just working with your sound guy, because like, um, you know in concert work, which I've done for a gajillion years, mm-hmm. and even on Broadway, I used to work with this. I, I was blessed to work with this man, Steve Kennedy, from Cats on, who's a genius sound designer, and a genius b- b- mixer, and I it's so. Incredibly technical to try to explain all this stuff, but, and it's hard to explain it if you're not a sound man, you know? And so I have to use language that's not, and I always ask my sound man that I worked with for years, Terry Gabas, in concert work, what do I tell them about the EQ? What do I tell them about the reverb? And I asked uh, Steve for his counsel too. So I was just not hearing, and if I don't hear the mix coming back, I I push, and if I push, I hurt my voice. And it's just this vicious cycle. Part of why I love to sing is sound. Like, I discovered that I had this resonant voice, like a big voice, and I was a little kid. So I started looking for places that had resonance, like my shower was great, or a culvert under a highway was great, on certain churches or cathedrals. You know, and certain concert halls, not all. And so when I first got to New York, I was that kid that went to Carnegie Hall, snuck in the stage door, and while the cleaning crew was working, went out there to sing to see what the resonance of the hall was like, because it was Carnegie Hall, and I, I wanted to sing there someday.
4: Here's-
1: And I did the same thing with Philharmonic and the same thing with the St. John's of the Divine and the same thing with St. Bart's. I was just like, sound, you know, sound, <laughs> like the reverb effect, you know, echo, how do you, whoa, that's so cool, mm. you know? And I loved that. So Kennedy, like people have been very kind about my work in Cats. But, you know, and, and I listened back to some of those, you know, YouTube videos and stuff and I'm like, Okay, <laughs> that's that's pretty decent. And uh, but I realized that as much as anything, the beauty of what I was able to do was because of Kennedy. And what you, if you listen to that, his record, his the resonance he places around my voice, and, and the way he mixes my voice, gives it the magic mm. and the spin. Because that same that same singer without that would just be. The one singing in the shower. I don't know. You know what I'm saying. I'm just fully aware that it's my collaboration
0: at all times, with my collabor, you know, my team. I love how you're describing, you know, this this sound uh, phenomenon that I think most audiences would have no concept no, of they don't. whatsoever. And in fact, it, it calls to mind you mentioned just now, cats, um, because as you know, I'm a dedicated fan of yours Thank <laughs> through you. the years. Thank and I've you. watched that video on YouTube now Thank of you performing at the 1983 Tony Awards singing mm. memory. And literally every time I see it, I've seen it a thousand times. I ask myself, how is she doing that? Mm. Right? It's like, and now I have some insight into what I'll tell you how. What was, it's, you know, this, that what teacher, was Paul yeah. Gavert, taught me how to sing long
1: line. And he was he's a brilliant leader singer. And he was re- relentless about that lesson. He also gave me all the tools where I made my breakthrough into understanding how to sing as a storytelling singer. And I'd been studying with him for 13 years, but cats and memory humbled me. I was like, oh, man, I don't know how to do this. And I was losing my way because I was getting so much advice from the director, from Andrew, from Andrew's friend's Placido Domingo. And I was just like, oh my god, it's a fucking nightmare. Excuse my language. Yeah, Placido's always calling me. And me up. <laughs> he was like, get his, off my dick, Placido. God. His advice was, just tell the girl to sing the song. And I'm like, I am just singing the song. But I wasn't stopping the show. And the job assignment was, stop the show. And that was a lot of pressure in and of itself because I'd stopped shows, but I didn't know why. I didn't know how. Mm. It just seemed like magic. Sometimes it happened, and that sometimes... is why, because you're magic.
2: No, by, <laughs> by the way,
1: <laughs> no. I'm just trying to say sometimes it happened, and sometimes
2: it didn't. And I, I had. But it no... has to be daunting when someone says you need to stop the oh, show. Yeah, yeah. Like that sounds like the opposite is going to happen because they're yeah. putting all this pressure on mm-hmm.
1: you. Yeah, I was terrified, absolutely terrified, and so. I, I got to a point in previews where it was just not working and they were tense and I felt really certain that they were going to fire me. And so I literally called Paul, you know, from our landline telephones <laughs> from the theater, Paul, I'm in trouble. They're going to fire me. He's like, get over here on your lunch break. So I went over there. and. Um, He threw this pillow, this is really intimate and silly, but I'll tell you. He threw this pillow on the floor and he goes, hit this pillow. And I'm like, Paul, you don't understand. I'm about to lose my job. This is a great job. (laughs) You know, it's a great song. I said, no, a kinetic exercise isn't going to work at this point. And he goes hit that pillow. So I get down on the floor and I'm hitting the pillow like, oh, pleasing my teacher. Oh, <laughs> Suddenly I'm hitting the pillow, I'm hitting the pillow. I start sobbing and crying. Now this next part will sound really stupid in new age, but this is literally what happened. I heard this little voice inside my head. <laughs> so silly. I'm here too. I'm here too. And I'm like, who is that? And then I realized the kid in me the one who liked to sing in culverts, and highways, and churches, and so. She does the job, and I had ignored everything she felt about Grizabella, about the song. And so I'm like, okay. And it was a very cathartic experience, and Paul's like, you got this, and I'm like, no, okay. So I was like, okay, what do I do? And this little kid in me just took me out in the streets of New York and had me follow homeless people. So I had a lot of wonderful adventures following homeless women. Many of them chased me down the street and told me to go away. (laughs) So I had to learn to be very surreptitious in my study of them. And then another day I went into this Barnes & Noble bookstore, and there was this beautiful book there of homeless people and they were full of light and beauty and dignity, and nobody was telling me that. Nobody was giving me those words. in the. And, in fact, the choreography basically is, and all the other Grizabellas that I've ever seen play it this way, they drag themselves around the stage, you know. And, and Trevor kept saying, pathos, pathos. And I'm like, so I was acting pathetically, literally. And um, he also one day, this is, and I love Trevor Nunn. He's the greatest, literally, one of... Two, three of the greatest directors I've ever worked with in my life, and our collaboration on Sons of Boulevard was divine. But I didn't know how to bring myself to, because he's a genius, and I was just, you're a genius, and Jillian Lynn, you're a genius, <laughs> and Andrew Lloyd Webber, you're a genius, you know. I was just like, oh, I'm so happy to be here, <laughs> you know. So um, I was doing everything they said, and I was choreographed down to my pinky finger, but nothing was working. So I'm like following these women and I'm looking at this book and I keep hearing this word, dignity, dignity, beauty, humanity, connected humanity. And I had just discovered in the previous show I'd done, which was getting my act together and eight is enough. I had discovered this way of working using meditation while I was working. But in get, getting my act together, I was free to do that with utter abandon running around the stage and being as crazy as my inspiration would tell me to be or my intuition. And suddenly in Cats, I had no freedom. It was just like, oh, you know, it's like, I gotta be this, I gotta be that. And so I didn't have, I, couldn't, I didn't felt like there was a space to take risks. And so I couldn't discover it, you know? And so these women and this was incredible. After this, it was a two-week period. And they kept coming to me to give me help, because it still wasn't working. And fortunately, something in my head said, tell them you're in transition. So I said, I'm in transition. And they were like, oh, she's in transition. And they left me alone, which was amazing. I've never, I was like, oh, that's interesting. And so they didn't, they trusted me and didn't fire me, which was amazing. and. Then one morning I came out, because we were rehearsing in the daytime, previewing at night. I came out of my porch um, of our building. I lived at 86th and West End. And I w- walked out, and this beautiful homeless woman, whose hair was exactly the color of Grisabella, and whose makeup was pasty white and, you know, russian and this smeared lipstick. She'd lived in our neighborhood for a long time, and I'd seen her, but I'd never seen her. Never really taking her in. She was walking down the street like she was floating, like she was the most beautiful creature in the world. And I was mesmerized. And as she passed my porch, we made eye contact. And it was a very profound communication without words. And she said in so many, in her manner was like, I see you. I see that you see me, you know, and um, I wish we had some time to talk, but maybe another day. And she turned and floated away. And I was like, oh my God. And my inner being said, that's Grisabella." And I was like, oh my God. A Couple of days later, I'm coming out of the stage door at the Winter Garden at the end of the show and another woman, almost exactly like her, same Grisabella hair, moonlight hair, a mess, you know, pasty makeup, smeared lipstick walked across my path, again, floating in high heels. You know, like, she was the most beautiful thing in the world. and But with great serenity and great dignity and and deep inner peace and deep awareness of her humanity connected to my own. But our circumstances being completely different. But no difference in our essence. And I was like, and then I was like, thank you, universe. I have this. I've got this. I know exactly what you want. And I went out there, and it took about a few performances to because my journey through the story, I thought it was a, the whole show, but discovered later when they flew me for the eighth anniversary to London to see the show. Um, it was the first time I'd actually seen the show, and I was like, where is she? Where is she? And I realized, I was like, there she is. Oh, she's gone. Okay, there she is. But see, Trevor told me to always be in the wings watching, so I was, so I thought I was constantly there. You mm-hmm. know, how sounds silly, and so... It's like a 13-minute journey, which was shocking to discover. But I was able to bring that awareness of these women and their inspiration and everything I'd learned, which I could go on and on and on telling you what I've learned about that. And so this is the shortcut version. Um, And I went out there, and the whole thing was of a piece and uh, consistency. And I finished singing Memory, and there was that moment of stunned silence, um, and then everybody went nuts. And I was like, oh, thank you, God. Thank you so much. And then from then on, we were home free. And they were, I, I came off stage that night, and Trevor was in the wings, and he goes, that's what I meant. That's it. That's what I meant. The man. here's the secret, and I hope Trevor doesn't hear this, but the truth is, in the end, everything he told me, I played its opposite. The active verb in my head was the opposite, and that was it. Isn't that interesting?
0: I hope you saw this summer, um, when the Cats trailer came out, that there was a viral moment of people sharing yeah. your Tony performance. I know, it was crazy. And 37 was, uh, years later, 36 years later, that Grizabella that you created is being celebrated by everyone yes, as a means it was a of real, comparison.
1: Uh, it was very gratifying. Mm. Um, yeah, I was very touched by that.
2: Well, we're going to let you go. Um, oh, it's we do really have nice one. Talking to you. Well, we have one final question. Oh, okay, um, and that question is: What was? Was there a show or a moment in uh, in your life that made you want to become an actor? Was there a specific show or something yeah, that? Yeah,
1: pajama you saw? game and yeah. a steam yeah. heat. Yeah, um, but I I didn't know that meant be an actor. I thought I knew I had a voice. I knew I had a, a, a unique voice, and people told me that. And I knew what I was so excited to discover in the musical theater was that there was a place for girls with big voices. You know, talent is a word for money, a word that we used to use in ancient language for money. And if you're blessed with talent, it means that you have this gift. And so that's going to help you make a living if you are in service to the community at large. To be in service to the community of the audience, you need to know what's going on in the world. You need to have some sense of human history and evolution. You need to observe the patterns of repetition in, in our culture, um, like what's happening now. There are certain lessons we haven't learned, clearly, that we are repeating. And it is absurd, <laughs> you know? But you have to, as an actor, your job, or singer, or storyteller, is to serve the community's consciousness and awareness as kindly, and as lovingly, and as tenderly as you possibly can, and as courageously as you possibly can. That takes a lot of work, and you're an athlete. You have to maintain, all great athletes have coaches, and you continue to work with that coach, and you work, and you work, and you work. These, so many kids you know, young people in the business think they're it. They're the finished product. And they're, they don't understand that the ultimate privilege is the service that your talent and expertise can give to the community. I've never been so aware of that. I mean, I, I've been aware of it for a number of years. and It's been my raison d'etre, my purpose as a singer, actress, storyteller. But now more than ever, and the privilege of doing this tour, you know, I'm sad to leave it um, because it's just been such a gift to go out there eight times a week, every night, every day, and watch these people be so grateful to experience their their God-given right, which is to feel joy. Right. You know, it's like... Gee, many crickets. Which I mean, is harder to
2: feel as the day, it, no as, kidding. as if you turn on the TV or read a yeah, newspaper. Because
1: we're inundated with a program
2: yeah. of ill consideration. And also that, that, that notion of what you're saying, which is you always have to continue to learn mm-hmm. and practice mm-hmm. and hone your craft. Mm-hmm. And that's probably true of anything, right? It, Everything. It, it, every, yeah. it, it, anything that you do in this yeah. world, that the learning never stops.
1: That's right. And if you ever think it does, if you ever think you're the finished product, you know, it's, it'll slowly, de-
2: there'll be a s- slow and painful demise. It's sort of like it's if like you like think <laughs> you're the finished product, you're over. That's <laughs> it. That's yeah. correct. Yeah. Mm. Well, on that note, Betty Buckley, thank you so much thank for you. sitting really? us. Thank you. It was thank great you. to thank see you. you.
1: Thank you We're very so much. So thank much. you much. Thanks, Thanks Jenna. And we wonder if I'll live with any lovers or spend my
4: life alone.
1: dozing. It's getting time for closing. And
4: we figured
1: that I'll go it on my own. But we'll meet the year we're 62
4: and travel the world as old friends do and tell each other what we
0: Rob here with You May Be Wondering. Following its Boston engagement in August, the 2017 Tony Award-winning revival of Hello, Dolly! continues to barnstorm the country, starting up again in Kansas City with Broadway veteran Carolee Carmelo in the title role for the next 18 cities of the tour. If you didn't already know, like most great musicals, Hello, Dolly! is an adaptation of an existing work. In this case, Thornton Wilder's 1938 flop The Merchant of Yonkers, which he later revised as the more famous and successful 1955 play The Matchmaker that legendary producer David Merrick optioned as a stage musical that would become Jerry Herman's Hello, Dolly, opening on Broadway in 1964, and for a brief while, earning the title of the longest-running musical in Broadway history. I've always been curious about how Tony Award-winning book writer Michael Stewart adapted Wilder's play into a musical. You may be wondering so yourself. Well, fortunately for me and you, Jamie bought me a copy of The Matchmaker, and I read it in preparation for seeing Hello, Dolly here in Boston it is fascinating and quite instructive to dissect knowing the musical as well as I do. Stepping back, most folks probably don't appreciate what exactly it is that a book writer of a musical does. It's not just writing dialogue, as important as that is. A book writer crafts the story, creates the plot, conceptualizes the scenes, not just what characters say, but also what they do, and more centrally, who they are. And of course, the book writer of a musical also works with the songwriter or songwriters to decide what should be spoken versus what should be sung and where songs should be interpolated. In the case of Hello Dolly, Michael Stewart had to decide what storylines, characters, plot points, and dialogue to lift directly from the matchmaker, what to change, and what to create entirely on his own. The final product is a glorious mix of all three that captures the essence of Wilder's play, but also makes the musical its own unique thing, elevating the material, focusing the story, and reorienting it around Dolly Levi. For the most part, all the key characters and the rough plot are the same, Built as a farce in four acts, in the play, as in the musical, Barnaby and Cornelius work for Mr. Vandergelder, the merchant of Yonkers, whose niece, Ermengarde, seeks to be engaged to artist Ambrose Kemper. While the matchmaker Dolly Levi ostensibly seeks to find a wife for Mr. Vandergelder, she's scheming to make him her husband. And Cornelius and Barnaby sneak off to New York, where they fall in love with milliner Irene Malloy and her assistant, Minnie Fay. Things come to a head at the Harmonia Gardens, where Rudolph, the waiter, holds court. All this sounds familiar. In fact, the play actually tracks quite closely with the musical, down to the dialogue and scene changes, most notably the scene in the hat shop. That is until around the end of what would be the end of act one of the musical, about the time of before the parade passes by. From there, Stewart takes the same characters and basic story and tells it firmly in his own way. The play ends with an act set at the New York home of Miss Flora Van Heusen, a character cut from the musical, where everybody's affairs are settled. Other waiters, beyond Rudolph, are also cut, along with Gertrude, Mr. Vandergelder's housekeeper, giving him a reason to sing It Takes a Woman. Instead of heading to Miss Van Huysen's after the Harmonia Gardens, the musical cuts away to a night court, for it only takes a moment, then back to Yonkers. Lines of dialogue like, I put my hand in, put on your Sunday clothes, and I'll be wearing ribbons down my back, are all lifted directly from the play to become songs. Instead of worrying about being able to sing, Cornelius discloses that he can't dance giving us a song, Dancing. As mentioned, Dolly Levi is a somewhat minor character in the play, despite it being titled The Matchmaker. Stewart fixes this by introducing her in the opening song and taking her monologue from the end of the play, oak leaves, manure, and all, and cutting it up to punctuate moments throughout the entire musical. Before the parade passes by, was famously added out of town and gives the musical its spine and emotional anthem. And a throwaway line about blue wallpaper in the play, takes on a whole new meaning in the end of the musical as a much-awaited sign from Ephraim Levi, Dolly's late husband. As big a hit as The Matchmaker was, after reading it, it's clear that Michael Stewart took the best jokes and the best lines, discarded what wasn't necessary, and retold Wilder's story with even greater success, thanks to the music and lyrics of Jerry Herman, and, of course, the alchemy of Carol Channing and director Gower Champion's choreography, and, well, a bit of theatrical magic.
3: Jennifer here. That's our show. Thanks for listening. You can hear us anytime on iTunes. The Fabulous Invalid is a production of OM and m and The Fabulous Invalid LLC and a proud member of the Broadway Podcast Network. Our theme music is by Lucky Chops. Today's episode was edited and engineered by Aaron Kaufman. Special thanks to the Four Seasons Hotel Boston for hosting us. You can find us online at thefabulousinvalid.com and on social media at Fabulous Invalid and on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts.